Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, occasional sticky filmmaker and more often than not, doing a podcast with you. And joining us tonight, he is the director of Criminal Edition, Samuel Gridley. Sam, hello. Hello, pleasure to be here, or not in person, but here. Yeah, I think the last in-person guest that we had was in March last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, I'm, and me and Andy have done one, the pair of us, in the same room once since then. Was that sometime in the summer, last summer? Yeah, it was back when kind of like fun was vaguely legal. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I am stunned that it's taken us 130 plus episodes to get here, but you came to us with one of the strongest lists that I've ever seen, I have to say. I sent it to Andy oh, and the wow. first thing he said, he was like, strong list. Very impressive, very impressive <laughs> okay. list. Any one of the films that you had on that list could have been the choice for tonight. Normally we would kind of go, well, let's narrow it down, but we just, because they were all so good, we just put it back to you and... This was the choice, and I've got to say, I'm very happy. Okay, so you have chosen uh, Chopping Mall for tonight. Why specifically this one? Chopping Mall, interestingly, is a film that I've come to really recently. So I'm on the on the hype of Chopping Mall. It's not necessarily one I've mm-hmm. watched a long time ago or anything like that. So I'm still kind of in that evangelical period where I'm telling people about Chopping Mall. That's kind of cool. That almost mm-hmm. never happens because uh, that's kind of, I kind of work backwards with horror. I came to it quite late. So I am very used to the notion of being on the hype train for 35 year old movies. So it's quite cool that yeah. somebody's there with me. I can tell you, Sam, that I wouldn't worry too much about when you saw it because I can almost guarantee that you saw it less recently than Mitch did. That is probably <laughs> true. But yeah, so you said you came to it relatively recently. How did you come across it to begin with? Obviously... Well, I say obviously, people that know me, I watch a lot of movies and I try and look for different ways of getting into, you know, because you you have, nowadays you have streaming, so there's so many options and I went through a phase, I think it was during the lockdown, unfortunately to bring that up again, but the first lockdown, everybody being nostalgic about the first lockdown. (laughs) Simpler times. Yeah, after Tiger King and Banana Bread, I I basically was... I basically was going through a time where I was selecting on streaming, kind of like you would in a video store sure. uh, or rental store, which is like, do I like the artwork? And mm-hmm. I, I did vaguely, I had heard of Chopping Mall here and there, but I just loved the artwork. And so I went with that one evening. It's pretty strong artwork. Mitch, you're familiar with it. It's a previous Mitch's Pitch poster. Uh-huh. Yep, that's right. What I would say as well is I'm guessing then that you came across this on Amazon Prime, which is where I watched it tonight. I did, yeah, I did. Uh-huh. I think that it's far easier to tell if something is going to be good from the artwork that you see on Amazon Prime, which is most often the original artwork, than it is on Netflix, which is normally like an arbitrary still from the film. Yeah, I'm interested in that algorithm. I, I think that obviously Amazon have a deal with, I, th- I think like whoever released Chopping Mall before Lionsgate owns now, 
uh, Vestron, I think they just, it was. Vestron, yeah. And I think they just have, and I think it's a few purchases down the line. Mm. Now Lionsgate have their library. So you get loads of these great Corman, or in this case, Julie Corman, produced films on there. And, I mean, Amazon Prime is an absolute goldmine if this is yeah. the kind of thing you're in the hunt for. Um, Andy. Yeah. Your history with this, I'm guessing, is longer and more storied than either me or Sam. Yeah, video shop, baby. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It was this film and uh, Reanimator, I suppose, that kind of rekindled my childhood love of for Barbara Crampton. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's ever truly gone away. To be honest, I think no. it's, all, it's always kind of bummed kind of brightly. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just thought it was so silly and so wonderful and I just loved it. And yeah, that's why I was kind of secretly hoping that Sam would pick it tonight because it, it was the one I, I, I really most wanted to do um, based purely on the amount of times that I've seen it and just this massive, massive love that I've got for it. The, the Lionsgate Blu-ray, I never made it to the UK, the, the Vestron one. It's so like, I had to import that from the States. Um, a lot of the other Vestron ones have kind of had the crossover, like you can get Waxwork here and Lair of the White Worm and all that kind of stuff. Like They kind of are available here, things like the gate. But that was one that never quite made the jump, so I had to kind of hunt that one down. But it now takes pride of place among the, the other ones. No, I, I don't really know why I hadn't come across it before, because cause I was born 89, so mm. I wasn't really that the video store generation. I was more like the trying to pick up every kind of DVD kind mm. of generation. And I just had never, I don't know whether it just wasn't around or I just didn't come across it until now. I mean, these things are easy to miss when you're doing it retrospectively, I think. Yeah, yeah. Sam, before we get into this, uh, you've listened before, you may know what's coming. We do make everyone that comes on the show do one thing, and it is for the benefit of anyone that is listening that has not seen Chopping Mall. Andy, do we have 30 seconds on the clock? Yep. Sam, if I count you in, how do you feel about trying a 30-second synopsis of Chopping Mall? I get the impression this might be relatively uncomplicated, but how do you feel... (laughs) Yeah, well, 30 seconds is almost the runtime of Chopping Mall, so <laughs> I'll give it a go. Okay, three, two, one, go. Well, Chopping Mall is about uh, a group of friends who want to have a sex party in a furniture store, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the mall that they are having this sex party in also has a patrol of new robot security personnel and they get struck by lightning and turn murderous and they have to try and survive the night happy happy with that 10 seconds left ah that is uh delivered like a man who has pitched previously (laughs) yeah well yeah elevator pitch elevator becomes very important in this film but yeah elevator pitch (laughs) that's <laughs> very true um, I just realised I haven't mentioned kind of like my backstory with this and to my infinite shame I'm actually not certain if I've seen this before or not and it's kind of Andy's fault I've been living in Glasgow for four years now and when I first moved to Glasgow I didn't know anybody so uh, Andy and his wife Jackie kind of took me under their wing and I, I basically I came, I went round there like often on like a Tuesday night and I think it was basically just them making sure that I was eating at least one square meal a week. Yeah. But we did, but like we would have a couple of bottles of wine and then we would stick a film on. And I was certain that I hadn't seen this. And then when I saw the robots patrolling around, I was like, hang on a minute. <gasps> oh, did we watch it? I think that this may have been one of the formative wine nights when we first started talking about doing this. But um, <laughs> I was basically, regardless of whether or not I've seen it, I was going into it with fresh eyes tonight. I was instantly sold on the score in the opening jewelry, uh, in the jewelry robbery scene at the start. Absolutely. Um, the score of this is incredible. It's precisely my flavour of 80s. I think any time you've got a robot on screen, 
the score's hilarious. Yeah, I just think they're so cute, the robots, <laughs> and and their little theme song. Weirdly, it sounds kind of like mechanical legs, which they don't have. <laughs> but if they did, they would be. I mean, I'm, it's a podcast and I'm doing a motion, no one can see me, but they would be like little running legs. It is brilliant score, but I just imagine them kind of skedaddling to that music. <laughs> I think that would be a thoroughly unsettling visual. Definitely, yeah. If they had legs, and obviously it's probably quite impractical in this case, but uh, if they had legs, that would be pretty bad. Early on, like in my notes, like because you see the protector robots relatively early, like you see them like scene one. Yeah. I was like, how can I can I succinctly describe these robots for people who haven't <laughs> seen the film? I didn't even try. I just called them the uh, Paul Block Two Thousand. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I was like, well, there's a bit of Johnny Five in there, and there's a yeah. bit of Robocop, and also... Yeah, I was going to say Robocop. Yeah, yeah, certainly in the way they speak. Yeah. But there's also a bit of uh, Polly's birthday robot from Rocky Four. Yeah. I think if you Weirdly, mash all those things together, that's you, you've, got your, you've got your protector robot down. I was sure that there was a toy growing up, there was a kind of a toy robot, remote control robot that they looked like. And then I also had this kind of transmogrified memory of some kind of, was it a robot or something that's a slushy maker that <laughs> looks like them as well and you did it in its belly? I might be just kind of melding all these things. Like Mr. I, like Mr. Frosty? Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking about that, which they don't look anything like. I mean, like I'm concerned this may have been a beautiful dream. Yeah, <laughs> a yet to uh, come out product. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I uh, so yeah. Basically, what we see at the start is uh, this jewelry robber getting apprehended by a protector. Mm-hmm. Protectors, yeah. what was the name for the robots? Which is actually part of a promotional video for these robots and their kind of functionality. Um, I think it's really funny. I was watching it with the subtitles on, as I always do, and when the robot kind of tasers the robber, the subtitles just said, triumphant music place. <laughs> I think that was also what the Robocop thing was for me as well, was that advert. Yeah. The kind of the orientational film about what it was. was Obviously, it's quite playful and it kind of sets the tone for the film that, you know, you're not watching something really happening and all that kind of thing. But it was not that the film is, like, super satirical, but it was almost gets there with that. I would say so. I I, I love this as an opening, I have to say. Mm. Yeah. I think this is a it's first really and last time it attempts anything like that. Pretty much. We do also get an idea of how the robots work here. I'm very heavily predicated on people being able to immediately present their work ID badge. Now, this is less of a live concern right now because we're all working from home. But see, when we were still in the office, I forget my work ID badge probably like three days out of five in an average week. If like like if the protectors ran my work, I would be blown to smithereens like by Tuesday. Yes, but is your work ID badge as massive as these are? <laughs> they're quite eye-catching, aren't they? Yeah, they're huge. I went which to is so why I don't know why a robot of this, I guess, high-tech can not see it from further away. They look like they kind of need their reading glasses on when they're like going <laughs> Just squinting at it. Yeah. It would be amazing if you saw one producer like half-moon glasses. Yeah. I went to Celluloid Screams one time, right? And they made me, uh, as a guest, and they made me a guest pass that was print that was on A4 and laminated and attached <laughs> to a lanyard. And Did you feel like a tiny man? I felt like a moron. I felt like I should have beer bottle glasses. But like that—that's what these badges are like. They—they they are. You're right to say they are humongous. It is the corporate equivalent of Flavor Flav's giant clock. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think that the opening credits kind of give us a kind of whistle-stop tour of the mall. And what I would say about this is that this absolutely passes for vaguely futuristic for 1986, I think. Well, this is yeah. filmed in an actual mall. This is filmed yes. in the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which is where the scene where Arnie swings across a shopping mall in Commando takes place. Absolutely. Oh, okay. And also, I think some of Fast Times at Ridgemont High was done there as well. Yeah. That's oh, right. cool. Okay. Although which I, I think... think the lead in this, she is in Fast Times yes. as well. Mm-hmm. I think, though, they had a little more... Uh, of a problem shooting chopping mall after hours in there than they did shooting commando during the day. Uh, I think the budget was substantially larger on commando. Yeah, but I, I I like the fact that it's all set at night and in the one location and because even the orientation where you have because I think the the scene we're talking about when they're being demoed the robots is a week before the robots go mad, mm. but it's still at night. So I <laughs> I love yeah. the idea that they came in and. Like they had to do it after hours, even though they were the contractors doing the robots. And I also love that for some reason they need glamorous women to reveal them. Oh, yeah, we, we get to get those glamorous women kind of going down the escalator, and that guy's going up and he's like, he's carrying all those boxes and he collapses on the escalator from, I don't know, a mixture of arousal and rubbernecking. Like, <laughs> But there is so much japery in the opening credits of this. Oh, yeah, you mean like as well the little child with the chocolate ice cream cones that winds up like absolutely covered from head to toe in chocolate? Yes, the very same. And all the yeah. people run in in kind of Benny Hill double time That's and right. crowd him and then he's still got the ice cream afterwards. Uh, um, I wrote down Benny Hill for that yeah. as well. Yeah. I think that's supposed to speak to the urgency of kind of consumerist greed. <laughs> sure. What it also sure. does is because at first I thought, oh, this sequence is just kind of you know jovial and etc. But it does establish lots of places that we'll see later in the film. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like 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 I say, I I I, th- I think that the entire opening with the promotional video into this is all really effective. I think that yeah. it's good for setting the scene in terms of like familiarizing yourself with where you're going to be. But I also think it sets the tone for what you're about to get really mm. well as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Can I just quickly mention uh, while this presentation's going on, just before we we get to the restaurant, the couple that are just oh, they just seem to exist just to be bitchy the whole time like one of them yeah uh, and racist yeah and racist yeah yeah the females Mary Warrenoff who was in like uh, House of the Devil and stuff like that but yeah I, I think they're amazing apart from the one comment where he says that well, he says something like one of them one of the robots looks, looks a bit too ethnic yeah like uncomfortably but did, ethnic but did we know that these two are cameos of characters from another film no I didn't, I didn't know that yeah <laughs> In the presentation scene, there's this couple that we keep cutting to, as we've mentioned, and they make these kind of eye-rolling jokes, and they do a bit of eye-rolling themselves, but apparently they are from a film called Eating Raul, which is a dark comedy where they play a couple that run a restaurant, and they have... A swinger or something? I've only read the synopsis, so I haven't seen it. But (laughs) there's a kind of a, a swinger breaks into their apartment and they kill him, and then they use him in the cooking of their restaurant, and then they continue to do this to make their restaurant successful. Oh, lovely. Wow. And they are those characters. Oh, that's cool. Also, I now feel extremely underprepared because I'm evidently the only one that hasn't mined any trivia. (laughs) We do meet Susie, played by Barbara Crampton, in the pizzeria, and uh, Mm. Allison. So we see them kind of like interacting with each other and get a little bit of a feel for them. And also, they kind of both talk about having to serve this kind of like stereotypically disgusting guy. Yeah, it's like greasy, greasy spoon, but everything's greasy kind of place. 
um, for people who look like that, who play those kind of characters, it's like, what do you put in the casting call for that? You have yeah. to be quite honest about it. Uh, to be yeah. to be frankly, if you're looking for an overweight guy with a moustache, you need to kind of needs to be what you're what you're putting in there. Um, yeah, if must you're be comfortable with it. looking physically shiny at all times. <laughs> Also, that he's this this guy who's like the slobby kind of guy. They do say Barbara Crampton's character. She does say, "Oh, he's a bit handsy," so we don't mm. feel too bad for him. Yeah, he's very heavily painted as a creep. In fact, he sells creep right out of the gate, and then you get that solidified. I know everything I need to know about that guy in thirty seconds. Yeah, but let's be honest. There's not many other people eating in this restaurant, and I think it's quite clear why. Because the chef, Mitch, just smoking in the kitchen as you would expect, <laughs> uh, and covered from head to toe in food. It's, it's foul. Like, there's got to be numerous. I, I would walk in the door of that place and I'd go, table for... T- nah, never mind, mate. Yeah, I think probably too many code violations for me. Yeah, also that restaurant is not in the main food court, which we've had established there is a main food court, so it's off the beaten track. <laughs> so you really want to go and get some grease, you have to go there. It's the wrong side of the tracks, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the one just as you're leaving the mall that's like right next to the Poundland that's by the doors. And it's the place with all the Roger Corman film posters up in the uh, cafe as well. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah, pretty important character introductions here. Susie and Allison are going to obviously be two of our main characters. Um, I love the fact that they're talking about the fact that they're going to like soon blow this dump and go out in the town and they're literally going to go to a party in like another shop. Yeah, it's hilarious. And there's no wonder why Allison has to be convinced to go. At first you think, oh, because she doesn't, oh, maybe she doesn't really like drinking or something like that. And it's no, it's probably because it's in a furniture shop. Yeah, exactly. She's like, oh, loosen up a bit. It's like, like, like loosen up nothing. I just don't want to go to a party in a fucking furniture shop. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe, God forbid, she might be worried about her job. God knows nobody else is. Like, everyone just drinks and shags in the building out of hours. Like, everyone in this. We'll get to that. I've got some, some thoughts on that. <laughs> Speaking of crucial character introductions, though, Michael, Ferdy, and Greg. <laughs> Mike drives me fucking nuts with that chewing gum. Yeah, and he's chewing the gum in every scene. Yeah, and it's not like he's just chewing gum. He's chewing, he's been told to chew it, like, theatrically. Yeah. I also feel that they're sort of just different versions of the same man. Because their hair is so similar, and it's like a very similar shade. And it's like Ferdy is just the nerdy one because he's got glasses. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, the more chiseled guy, and then the guy who's kind of in between those two. Yeah, but they yeah. look so similar, which yeah. is kind of in tandem with the, the kill bots as well, or the protectors looking quite similar as well. And they could have all done with looking a bit different from each other. <laughs> Agreed. See, like, I mean, I mean, you're right. It's like it's like three stages of a Pokemon, isn't it, with these three? But like, I think, yeah. like, um, uh, uh, not to spoil it too much, obviously, like, but w- one of them eventually dies, and they're thrown from a high height. And I remember I was taking notes while watching it, and I just like turned around to type on one screen and looked back, and then the person that had been thrown from the ledge was face down. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, which one of those three is that? Easy to do, especially yeah. when they wear the same shirts. Exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like they're wearing the same like they're wearing a uniform. It's like, Jesus. Christ, man. The next like couple that we meet who are going to kind of be the main players in this are the couple at the car. Yeah, so the, mecha- the mechanics, the married yeah. mechanics. Uh, yes, R- the married mechanics. Yes, Rick exactly. and Linda. Yeah, that's right. Rick and Linda. Okay, thank you. Rick was in uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah. Yeah, I quite like these two. Yeah, they pose some questions. They pose questions of the ages of everybody mm-hmm. because I guess Susie and Alison, they work in the cafe and then the three guys, uh, they work in Furniture King. 
and it feels like they're trying to do all this under the radar because they're younger. They might be teenagers or high schoolers or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then these guys, they're a married couple that have a mechanic business. That's right. <laughs> and you'd think that they have their own house to go and do these things in. <laughs> yep. But they decide to opt for the furniture store. I categorically don't believe that any of these characters are below 25. No, they definitely aren't. No, I would, I would say that's fair. I did, I did write down, don't these people have homes to go to a couple of times? Absolutely. At least between them, you know? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Somebody's parents have to be away at the lake or whatever. Yeah, exactly. We do lose. Now, can I have a question? Um, because we see a guy in a lab coat getting killed by way of a throat punch from uh, one of the protectors. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are they like in mall scientists or what? No, they're just your your standard. Like, you need a technician to control these robots. You're not just going to leave it in the hands of a, some kind of fucking Joe Schmo that you just hire in, like to work weekends looking after your robots. Like, yeah, you, you can't even sp- give that guy a certificate in an afternoon. Ah, you, need, you need a specialist for this. You're not going to hand it off to like Dick Miller's janitor to do it. <laughs> like, you need a professional here, and the only way you can show that this man is a professional is to put him in a white coat. Exactly. In um, front of important flashing buttons. That's right. Enormous decks of electronics and gigantic monitors. No and questions he gets asked. killed by... He's looking at a, like a Playboy centerfold that he's found in a I think it's probably a big phone book but it looks like it's going to be the manual to how to work these robots <laughs> but in between the page that says what to do if they get struck by lightning is this centerfold <laughs> see that says all about this about this company uh, what are they called Securetronics I think they're called yes yes when they do this kind of presentation early in the film they're very specific about the fact that these robots are not designed to kill presumably they're just designed to to maim and scar subdue yeah, but it just it feels to me as if this is a, exactly the kind of corrupt multinational company that might put a Playboy centerfold in their robot manual to distract <laughs> you from the fact that they have in fact built these robots with lasers in their eyes yeah. and the ability to shoot plastic explosive out their chests. It also, a fatal flaw is the fact that the quote-unquote computer is on the roof. <laughs> yeah and so it's it's prime so and i think even in the diagram it looks like it has something to conduct electricity yeah it's definitely an oversight in hindsight you know hindsight's 2020 <laughs> absolutely i think it's really funny watching barbara crampton say things like bodacious however it is time for them to get to the party after another one of the tech guys dies another soldier lost in the battle between science and robots again you just throw that off mitch that's a uh, garrett graham he was in child's play too and crucially Played Beef in The Phantom of the Paradise. I mm. was going to mention that because I love Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, me too. And when I saw him, I thought, oh, it's that guy. And the, yeah, he's, he's been on loads. He's like been on loads of stuff like TV, etc., yeah. etc. Et lots of Star Trek, lots of this and that. And he seems like the more competent technician. Yeah. He's just reading the book about science fiction films. And, you know, he, he's just he's not looking at Playboy. And he, no fault of his own, gets killed. The one thing I will ask is i don't understand necessarily the motive of the robots to hide the body of the other technician (laughs) yeah and and lie in wait for another technician they don't really hide any other bodies like after this well actually that's not true because they kind of tuck mike away behind a cigarette machine yeah and and they lay in wait yeah. I really like this scene actually. I think there's a lot of nice kind of fake out stuff here. I really like the he getting the phone call for nobody 
and that hap- that happens later as well. That's kind of a running theme is that just the phone rings and it's not for anybody that's there. <laughs> Why do they need technicians at all if the robots aren't online? They've got a chair in there. <laughs> got to have someone filling the chair. <laughs> can't just you can't just have a chair sat there like getting paid to sit there and no one like and also the phone that's never for anybody. Yeah, not in my America. <laughs> we are off to the party, which is quite a low key affair. I think that it had been talked up. It's the way it had been talked up early doors. I kind of sounded like it was going to be this like kind of like thing with like forty guests or something. When it was like, oh, it's like we can't have it here. You know, we need to be really careful if my uncle finds out or my dad finds out he's going to kill us and stuff. And there's like there's it's literally like three or four couples. It's very weird that it, it kind of devolves into. A, a, Essentially an orgy. Yeah. I mean, to start with, that fir- that store, the Furniture King store, I f- it makes me feel really uncomfortable anyway because it's so... <laughs> it doesn't feel like there's any real sections. It's not like, here's the bed section, here's this. It feels very uh, cluttered and puts me on edge. And then... <laughs> To put a sex party in it as well makes me feel very uncomfortable. It it does very much have the feel of a gigantic pile of furniture or like a furniture warehouse rather than a shop. Definitely. Especially as uh, it's like the store is actually quite small. It's like one of those smaller mall shopping centre kind of stores. It's like not one of the larger ones. It's not a corner one. Exactly. Um, I also did, just like don't want to blow past the fact that we have some established couples here. But we do also have uh, the blind date of uh, Ferdy and Alison. Yeah, because they set uh, Alison up with Ferdy so that he keeps Sturm about them having a party in his uncle's shop. Yes, aha. Uh-huh. And, and I think that he basically kind of thinks that everything's kind of worked out quite well for him. But when they head to the furniture shop so everyone can go and have sex, um, and they're kind of sitting watching the movie together, kind of just being the kind of slightly uptight and slightly nerdy couple at the orgy, everyone has one. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that like the way he talks to her um, about it all being nice and how he's having a nice time, it reminds me a little bit of Hayden Christensen in the Star Wars prequels, you know, that I hate sand thing. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Um, very much that energy for me. This whole thing is quite uncomfortable. I mean, you've got couples banging in beds, you've got a guy going down on a woman like six feet away, you've got another couple pumping on a couch, and then those two, like, it's uncomfortable as it is, they've just met, and there's literally one of their friends coming in their ear. It's just, I feel really bad for them. I would be inclined to say, like, do you want to just, like, we could just go for a wee wander in the mall and have a chat? Yeah, definitely. And they, they just sit there very quietly watching Attack of the Crab Monsters. Yeah, and, there's uh, really nothing worse than sitting feeling like the spare prick where you can hear people that you know having sex and in and, and, and another room is bad enough, but to have them there, like, in your peripheral vision. What I will say, one thing that is probably important to say for B-movies and of this era is that all the sexuality seems quite balanced. Like, everybody's kind of wants to be there, it's consensual. Uh-huh, yeah, everyone seems to be having a good time. Which yeah, is it's, it, it's fun. It's not, yeah. it, it's not too great. Apart from the proximity of them... <laughs> Yeah, apart from slight awkwardness, it's yeah, but no, it's but if you good. compartmentalize it into individual sexual encounters, they're all quite wholesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, however, while all this is going on, the robots are clocking on for a hard night of patrolling. Yeah, they're, they're kind of just cruising by and having a look at this madness that's going on in this in this shop. And the more I look at the robots as the film progresses, the sillier they get to me, and the more I love them. Yeah, the more uh, I, I'm just finding them. I said earlier, cute, endearing. Mm. Adorable, whatever you want to say. See, any time they put their hands up? Yes. 
Very funny. Kind of in distress. It's kind of like a, an Aardman character when they do that. <laughs> 100%. Very much so. Yes, definitely. Walter, the janitor, gets uh, gets fried here. He's the first person. He's the first real casualty that we see kind of at the hands of the robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like what they've tried to do when they tried to kind of shoot him and taser him hasn't worked. But yeah. ultimately, like, he does get electrocuted because the, the, the kind of, like, the taser thing that shoots out of him kind of lands in the water that's been spilled. Not a bad death, but I like the transition out to uh, Michael and Leslie in bed and Michael saying smoking's bad for your health. But he's st- <laughs> But he's still saying that while the visual is uh, Walter's smoking corpse. Yeah. Dick Miller, uh, Walter is also a crossover character from another movie. Really? Yeah, from, from A Bucket of Blood, mm. Walter Paisley. Yeah, and obviously Dick Miller was like a massive collaborator of Roger Corman's. Yeah, exactly, yeah. What is the name of this cinematic universe that we're building here? Cormanverse? <laughs> yeah. But the, but the thing is, is about all these cameos is that they're all either reluctant or maybe slightly less conventional serial killers, where the title of this film and the poster will make you think it is a slasher in mm. that sense. <laughs> so it's almost like they're showing these people and you're like, I thought it was going to be a slasher movie, it's actually a killer robot movie, but um, here are some people that are serial killers and they're, well, this one's being killed by them. Obviously, actually released originally as Killbots. Yeah, I've read that, and the, and they were worried. At, well, I know that it didn't do much money, and they were worried that it looked like a Transformers film or something. <laughs> and at first, I thought, well, how could that be? And then I watched an original trailer, and the font and the design of the font looks just like Transformers. So I thought, oh, that's why. But then, when you actually see the robots, you're like, oh, this is worse than GoBots. Yeah, like this is just like like generic sorry to keep slamming pound shops but it's like the kind of toy you would get in a, a pound shop it's not like <laughs> it's not high end like a transformer no but yeah the next thing that we see is gonna mike and leslie in bed god knows what bed in the furniture store uh he sets off to get her her favorite brand of post-coital cigarette and he is also set upon by a protector now considering that their entire measure is badge checking this is glitchy hmm well, but I think we've established by now, Mitch, that the body count has already hit three, that these robots aren't exactly functioning as they're intended. Yeah, they're going off book, I think, at this point. I also wondered about him saying about smoking's bad for you. Is that the reason why he's chewing gum all the time? Did he quit smoking? Oh. Mm. Let's just install that as the truth. It could also just be an obnoxious douchebag. That is also... The case. Maybe all these questions are answered in the 90-minute cut. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because I think Killbots, the, when it first came out, was originally 15 minutes longer or something. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Which is why I think sometimes there's hints to uh, other things or, like, you know, maybe backstory between the friends and mm. it kind of uh, takes away that chaff, which I quite like, is that it kind of feels like you've just gone to a party with these friends and you're kind of catching up with why they get along. Mm. He also says to the robot, Klaatu Baradnikto. Yeah, yeah. To try and subdue him. Yeah. Uh, which is obviously daily Daily still. still, yeah. I think that it's funny that after Michael gets killed by uh, the protector robot and Leslie kind of like thinks that she's that he's playing like this long form practical joke on her mm-hmm. and she thinks this right up until she pulls his dead body out of the shadows and sees this three inch gash in his throat and I was just kind of, I was kind of like, she was absolutely certain that she was being kind of like lampooned in that moment. It's like, I like, how often does he pretend to be dead for the lols? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, a guy that chews gum like that, he's capable of lots of Unspeakable things. Yeah. (laughs) And frankly, deserves everything he gets. Just for the chewing the gum, yeah. And he's kind of mean to Ferdy. Yeah, uh-huh. I, he, he's, he's very much kind of like the jock character. But there's not too much meanness in this like that. That's why I kind of like this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I guess true, they're actually, essentially yeah. just trying to help their pal. Mm. Um, maybe not the right way to go around it, but I, I, no, I, I kind of yeah. I, I get what they're trying to do. It's aggressive friendship. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I think that I think that it is fair to say that Michael is the only character that feels remotely, like, one-dimensionally cunty at a time where a lot of these kinds of films and these like and these kind of casts had a couple of characters who were like that in a very overt and very annoying way. Yeah, um, ex- exactly. And I, I think that this whole cast, maybe minus him, is they're all so likable and kind of affable kids mm, kind of thing yeah. that it, it's not it's quite refreshing. Yeah, and the handy thing is we don't even have to concern ourselves with Michael too much because he's dead now. Yeah. Yay! Not long for this world either is Leslie, who in mere moments has her head blown to smithereens by a laser bolt, which we now learn that the robots can also fire. Absolute 10 out of 10 visual on this one. Loved it. I mean, that is incredible head explosion. Did you notice at the, at the end credits when they do that kind of whip round all the actors? It shows you a little bit of them. Um, when it gets to Leslie's character, it's just her head exploding. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. I I I love. I'm a sucker for those like end credits where you know the freeze frame and the and the name of the actor. And I burst out laughing when I first saw that that it was yeah. uh, her head explosion. But it is it is worth seeing again. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that like we've gone from scene setting to everybody locking into survival mode in a very kind of like organic and very satisfying way. I think that the way that this film shifts gears is really cool, and it's such a, mem- a good forward momentum. But I also think it's like a good a forward positive momentum. Like it just feels nice to be mm. keep going forward, and that's what's the joy of kind of watching the film. Yep, yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think that when your film comes in at seventy six minutes, it would be a bad state of affairs if it was paced badly but i think that it's like so brisk and it just does zero fucking about yeah um and yeah i, I just i love the fact that there's no meat on it and kind of like nothing that's in there is there by accident not at all i also really like the fact that the robots have lasers now and they sound like the martians from war of the worlds the george powell War of the Worlds. Definitely, yeah. The women kind of like make a temporary escape attempt through the vents at this point while the men head for a tooling up montage. Always love a tooling up montage. Yeah, Peckinpah's gun store. And also, as well as that being obviously homage to Sam Peckinpah, the sign for that store looks like a a Rizzler packet. (laughs) It does! It does. I um, uh, I love the way this whole thing unfolds when you see them kind of like, like I say, kind of like, kind of like that choose your weapon moment that you get that slow motion shot of the three of them heading out to face off against the first protector. I think the whole thing's really cool. Yeah, and also they're so positive and forward thinking as like a group of people. Yeah. Like they're not kind of making these silly mistakes that people in horror films always get uh, kind of accused of. They're they're really kind of let's just take these head on. Like he literally shoots in the air in order to get the robot's attention. I actually think this would be a totally different story without Rick, because I really feel that he steps into the leader role quite well. Yeah, and he's super likeable. I like, like I say, I, I think that at this point, because obviously it's around this time that, because the women trying to escape through the vent, the kind of female leads, all make the decision that, well, or at least kind of Susie makes the decision that 
they're not going to do that and they're going to come back and kind of partake in this. I think that like the way that they kind of like everybody reunites and teams up for what happens next is really, really fun. Well, she's um, having a meltdown in the vents, so she's got to get out. So that's kind of, sh- she decides that rather than run away, she's going to reunite with Greg because she's really struggling with the idea. One, I think being in the vents and two, leaving them behind. Well, they are literally having a meltdown, as you say, because apparently she says that they're trying to make it too hot for them in there, as in the <laughs> yeah. robots, which I guess means they have some kind of control over the environmental systems, which doesn't really it doesn't come back to that at all, but I just like that we have that detail and then we move on. Given, yeah. these, given these robots too much power. Definitely. 100%. I love the fact as well that after they make the decision to come back, the first two things you see are all three guys kind of kind of clamoring to try and prize open a lift and then you just cut to the three of them. Susie yeah, Allison yeah. and Linda making homemade Molotov cocktails. They're as like ingenuitive as the guys. Like There's no difference. It's just different ideas and different methods. They don't just berate Susie for coming out of the fence. They kind of say, okay, how, what can we do with this? Yeah, <laughs> How they're, can they're, we they're... convert this into some positive uh, robot killing energy? Yeah, they're like they're like, well, we're here now, so what are we gonna do? I don't know. I think that like maybe in nineteen eighty six that qualifies as ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes wondered whether is that meant to be the joke that they're a bit more tough than the you know because like Alison uh, earlier in the furniture store, she takes control of the Ferdy situation, which we, we see probably as empowering. But is that like a joke? For them, but I mean, it's good anyway. Also, take note of Chekhov's flair here. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That she sequesters yep. away. Never sequestered a flare in Act 1 that you don't blow a robot up with in Act 3. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we do, however, tragically lose Susie, uh, Barbara Crampton's character at this point, hoisted by her own Molotov cocktail-shaped petard. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I find this scene quite horrible because yeah. uh, it's, it's horrible in and of that it's a character that we've grown to quite like getting immolated, but her screams, man. Yeah. And also... Yeah, she gets shot in the leg and then she's on fire and it's it's probably the worst death. Hundred mm. percent, absolutely is. Definitely is the worst death in terms of like the one that is the hardest to watch. It absolutely yeah. is, in my opinion. Yeah, and and you're not too annoyed at them not being able to kind of go and grab her. It's it's kind of done pretty well, but it is pretty excruciating. Mm, yeah, I, I don't. I don't feel like she's anything other than kind of like beyond help in that situation. Like I don't yeah. think it was anything that any of them could have done. I just like it plays out perfectly fine, but it's horrible to watch. Yeah. So a couple of people we've lost. A couple of people, obviously, kind of like our main groups have whittled down a little bit. Inevitably, we have a brief kind of like, "What are we going to do after the war?" conversation when everybody's kind of hidden away. Considering that all of the robots are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, when they're talking about the kind of like final standoff that this is going to turn into, there's like a massive final boss energy about the way they're talking about this other robot. It's like there's one more out there, and it's like, but it kind of feels like he's going to be like bigger and angrier than like 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 you know like like the giant Doctor Robotnik, and it's like he's just another one of what you've already killed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's possibly the iteration that the film misses. Aye, I would be inclined to agree with you. I think the fact that they. I, and it's a very, very minor kind of comment, I think. Yeah, but definitely. I think, but I think that the fact that they all look the same means that there's no build in the kind of standoffs and confrontations that you have. Yeah, I think you could have maybe even done with like a blue stripe, a red stripe, and a yellow stripe. Oh, yeah, the, the, the simplest thing. I think even the numbers are slightly differently coloured, but I don't think that they, probably in a very good budget-saving way, they didn't want to lose out on any foot of film filmed of these robots. <laughs> 
so they could just use any one for any shot. I I, I completely agree. I think, and I think that that's exactly what that is as well. Yeah. If we're talking about the scene after they drop the elevator on the robot mm-hmm. with uh, Rick leaping from the top of the elevator. What a fucking hero. Yeah. And and Alison as well because she she you know she shoots the the gasoline tank when none of these other guys can. Do you not know, think yeah. it's quite sweet that the robots like they're aware of their failings? They know they can't take the stairs, so they're constantly riding the escalators and the elevators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great. I think that the level of AI that you're dealing with with those things are really good because I mean, like, like it's not like they react to the environments around them. You know, they're quite handy at melee combat. Like, eventually, at one point, uh, Ferdy gets like knocked out by a gas canister or like a fire extinguisher or yeah. something because he throws it. And uh, Protector Protector One, I believe it is, is like fuck you, mate. And picks it up and lobs it straight back at him and uh, hits him in the chest. And I was like. That's not one of the that's not one of the kind of like firearms or weapons or or any of the functionality that you are trained in. I was like that's sophisticated. Yeah, there was much more in that lightning bolt than we thought. 100% absolutely because like because they are savvy at the kind of like at the hand to hand moments. Yeah. Ferdy at this point hatches the fairly smart idea of uh, getting to, as you say, Sam, the extremely impractically located mainframe computer, which yeah. is uh, a vertical mile above the rest of the mall. On the um, roof, yeah, on the roof. But they basically say that, yeah, if they can get there and power that down, then this will in turn power the robots down and it'll give them a route to security. Generally, in situations like this, and ordinarily it's not robots, ordinarily it's a killer in a slasher movie, Andy knows this well, hunt and chase segments, which stuff like this kind of always has to kind of, to a certain extent, devolve into, mm-hmm. mm. tends to be the point where I start to check out a little bit. Yeah. Because I kind of feel like they all follow a similar format, like, um, and eventually it'll just get to a point where there's a confrontation and someone will die. The fact that this is so briskly paced means that I don't think that it gives you enough time to breathe that that segment of this ever Mm. really threatens to get boring. And I would say that this segment starts kind of right after Ferdy establishes this plan and uh, Michael is killed when he's kind of thrown over the edge by uh, Protector 3. No, uh, Greg. Greg, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Greg, yes. See, this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) An amazing stunt, by the way. Yeah, and also, yeah, great stunt. Also, as you say, the hunt... They don't eat. Most of the 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 group don't get up one level, so they're trying to get to the roof. Only Greg goes up, and he says, "Hey, the coast is clear." And then he gets shoved off the side, and they kind of put pay to that whole plan straight away. <laughs> That's so true. It's like yeah, it's like it's like oh, we need to get to the top floor and 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 disable this computer one way or another. It's like cool. The stakes have been established for Act Three. One person tries it, immediately fails, and everyone else just panics. I. Also like that there's a nice kind of tidiness to the fact that we've managed to keep our couples paired up. Uh, Alison is obsessed with the notion of splitting up. As yeah, she, she believes in divide and conquer, I think. So do the robots. Yeah. But yeah, she, she's, um, she's, very, she's very much kind of like, uh, yeah, for getting everybody to kind of branch out into breakaway factions, which does not work out well for her, ultimately. No. It doesn't work out bad for her. She survives. But she ends up in a very precarious position because she ends up cornered by one of the protectors. Hmm. After she's uh, after there's a fake out jump scare with a cupboard full of scrap metal. But yeah, she, she kind of <laughs> is the first. To suggest- I love when she attacks the cupboard full of scrap metal. <laughs> it's great. By the way, this film's actually a really great advert for the efficacy of these robots as kind of war machines. Yeah, definitely. Why? Why ever they've chosen to place these extremely deadly, quite hard to destroy robots 
as security guards in a mall, like retired police officers, is beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Allison kind of ends up getting cornered by Protector One, I believe. I don't know why I was so determined to distinguish between them in my notes when I was doing this, but um, uh, he it's takes due diligence. Quite a- I love the fact that it's like, I'm absolutely certain that that's Protector 1, but I just misnamed the main character human who died. <laughs> that's what they do. They demand respect. That's the problem with these robots. This is it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but Ferdy bursts in, shoots Protector 1 in the forehead, which knackers his laser. But like I say, he turns out to be pretty handy with lobbing projectiles at him and kind of takes Ferdy out of the game, at least temporarily. That would obliterate your ribcage. Yeah. Yeah, in like strict biological terms, he's an absolute goner when he gets that gigantic canister lobbed into his chest cavity at point blank range. <laughs> I do want to mention that we have skipped over. Uh, after Greg dies, they run away and they go and hold themselves up in the clothing store. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it's this kind of forward thinking. Okay, we'll go in here and we'll we'll you know bring the shutters down and we'll keep them out. And it does seem kind of like, that, you know, they're, they're kind of trapped. And then there's a great moment where they're kind of having a little argument and uh, Ferdy kind of has a go at Linda and Linda lashes out at him and they very quickly, she's remorseful and she says, I guess I'm not used to being chased around a mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. <laughs> Which is, I, I think, <laughs> it's a funny line, but also she plays it or they play it like properly straight. So she really does believe what she's saying. There's no, like, nod or wink to the camera, which is why it's so funny. Yeah, um, Sam, you're absolutely 100% right to make sure that we didn't just blow by that scene because because this is really interesting. It is, and it is worth a mention. The intensity of the internal conflict in the group at this point is at an absolute fucking fever pitch. Yeah, and to get that kind of interpersonal drama into 75 minutes is really a feat. I like the fact that the rest of the film kind of embraces its ridiculousness to such an extent, but then you see them here and it's kind of like, I don't know, when it happened, I was like, oh, I suppose if I was getting chased through an abandoned shopping centre by murderous robots, I'd be a bit on edge as well. Yeah, and that, that's definitely her performance. I think all the performances are pretty solid in this and like that is definitely her uh, delivery of that that gives it, that it's funny, but also like rings true. That's like another anomaly in the fact that like there's no weak link in the chain performance-wise here, I don't think. No, no. I, it's like no. any one of them could have been the lead, the hero, the heroine. You know, they all seem pretty capable like as characters and actors. Yeah, and there's no kind of placeholder character. They are distinct from each other and kind of like, and uh, apart from physically, if it's the guys. But like, um, <laughs> but, um, but like, um, like personality-wise, like, you know, like there's a lot of strong personalities, but they are really distinct. And the film does actually, again, in a 76-minute runtime, does kind of try and do the necessary heavy lifting to kind of give you a grounding in all of them and give you an understanding of them all, which I think is cool. And it's a really positive message as well because it's, you know, it's different kinds of strength. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so they 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 decide to take the robot's head on from the clothing store, and Allison has the idea to use mannequins as I guess distractions. Yeah, as distractions. That's it. It was like smart, by the way. Very smart, and and then have mirrors behind them so the lasers bounce back, just like at Laser Quest. Yeah, exactly. And and to know that those lasers are gonna work like that is. Well, see, Again. I would be more concerned about that as a plan because I've seen those lasers 
shoot people in the legs, shoot people <laughs> in the backs, blow heads apart, smash windows, cut through steel shutters. Like That is true. I would be more concerned that they would just obliterate the mirror. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, Andy. Maybe you have to take some chances, you know? <laughs> I guess. That's right the much. pluckiness like, of, that, of our heroes. <laughs> Alison, I think, from the beginning, gives off quite a conventional final girl energy, like in terms of slasher tropes. And I think, but I... Didn't expect her to be such an action hero as this goes on. Yeah, I, I kind of noted down that she's like kind of our Sarah Connor. Absolutely, yeah. 100%, yeah. 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 Wielding a mighty hairdo, by the way. That has volume. Well, exactly, kind of 1984 Sarah Connor is what yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> Definitely, voluminous. I love the, the scene in the pet shop, which just comes up here. Um when she takes cover in the pet shop and one of the protectors, presumably Mitch Protector 1, comes in hunting for him and he's just like <laughs> wrecking the place, like smashing stuff and freeing spiders and snakes. She's just kind of cowering in the corner, trying to stay quiet and avoid, I guess, the beady laser eyes of Protector 1. And she goes from having very real spiders around her to having some <laughs> thoroughly unconvincing rubber spiders stuck to her. That is fantastic. I just love that he bumbles through the uh, snakes and spiders section of the store. I, just, I guessed. I guess that the pet store was kind of alphabetized, so it was kind of like cats, dogs, spider snakes, sure, terrapins. Uh, yeah, they can be a bit snappy, can't they? Mm-hmm. Also, I think I, I believe they give you salmonella. Oh. But well, I, if, you, if, you, if you eat an undercooked one, or if one bites you, no, I think if you just touch one, then lick your fingers. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not suggesting um, anybody tries that. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Um, <laughs> um, a lot of glass shop fronts get smashed in slow motion in this film. If I was putting together um, a drinking game for this, that would definitely be in there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wonder if it was the same storefront that they just repurposed and just put the sugar glass in. Potentially. Yeah, it does happen a lot, but yeah, I, I, they're, they're pretty selective with what has uh, the shutters down and what doesn't. I think it's mm. pretty much what shops are used in the production, which shops aren't. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. Um, pivotally, though, the last smash shop front is the one from the hardware store. That's yes, true. very crucially. I'm going to put on my idiot hat here, which I wear quite a lot of the time. Oh, God. What is her actual mechanism for blowing the shop up here? Oh, come on, Mitch. So she, I don't know, she she spills loads of paint, which is toxic, right? No, it's not just paint, Mitch. I think the paint is more a traction thing, which does come into play, but she's also lashing paint thinner around that place. Yeah, I was going to say, like, tarps. Aye. Yeah. So she then lures one of the robots in, she's kind of shouting on him, and he comes zipping in on his little treads. Um, <laughs> and when he gets in there, his tank treads don't work quite as well on the paint and then he he's like oh no i i can't get there like <laughs> i really wish that the robot voice had just gone oh no when it gets stuck in the paint and then she throws Chekhov's flare at him and yep blows up the presumably the thinner that's all over the place this and is he's got his little arms out there as <laughs> yes well, in distress it's yeah the, it's the robot international robot sign for distress yeah, um, I, this this actual explosion and the visual of it is really fucking good. By the way, super satisfying explosion. There was there's a real danger that it could have been that they could have used all the explosions up, but this was great. Yeah. Belter, like definite proper grand finale vibes. Mm, yeah. You have to believe that that was a built storefront. Yeah, I know that they did most of the shoot in a mall and a couple of days in the studios, and I wonder if uh. that was a studio. Because I had suspicions that the uh, 
where they go searching for the robot behind the scenes, as it were, of the mm-hmm. mall was probably sets. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Because when you read about this film and you read about the kind of issues that the security guards in the mall had and the kind of ownership of the mall had in relation to some of the stuff that was going on out of hours, and I find it difficult to believe that they would have been cool with an explosion of this magnitude. <laughs> so, so you're not going to make too much of a mess, right? <laughs> because the owner of the House of Almonds is coming in early. To I, I have to give a shout out to this store called the House of Almonds and harken back to a day where you could, you know, financially viably just have a store in a shopping centre that just sold almonds. Yeah, yeah, get them in their shells, out of their shells, those weird sugar-coated ones that you used to get at weddings. Yeah. Change days, guys. There was also a shop called Slacks. Just trousers. Okay. Yeah, presumably, yeah. I love the fact that, um, again, if this film had any interest in padding its runtime, now would be the time to do it. Allison has basically single-handedly saved the day yeah. by blowing up this hardware store and nuking Protector 1. Um, they could have done this in a more protracted way when she came back and interacted with the characters more than she did, but they basically just give her enough of a victory lap for you to kind of savour the win, and then it just cuts. And I really, really like that. I love the fact that, again, because I think that, again, this is where a lot of films like this or slashers as well kind of lose a bit of momentum when they don't know when to finish. So I think that being succinct with this kind of thing is a big point scorer for me Mm. because it's satisfying enough in the moment and the final explosion visual is satisfying enough. You don't really need any more than that. And I think that the fact that it just kind of batters over the finish line off the back of this is to its credit. Well, you get the the, the kind of return of Ferdy as well, who uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has not had his chest cavity totally crushed, but instead has a small cut in his head, which he is tending to with a toilet roll. Yeah, he looked really dead before. He had so <laughs> much blood coming out the back of his head. And then when he turns up, it's just like... At first I thought, is she hallucinating? But she definitely deserves it. And you know what her victory lap is? Is It's a very nice dolly in on her. And it just kind of says, well done. As, yeah, the, as the camera moves in, it says, well done. Absolutely, absolutely savours her accomplishment. Yeah. But you have to believe that there's a couple of things going to happen here. Like they're going to have a stab at a relationship, but if speed taught us anything, it's that relationships that start under intense circumstances never last. <laughs> Bear in mind, they've just met, they don't know each other, they might have a crack at it, but it's never going to work. But you also have to believe that there's going to be a massive payment coming out from Secure-tronics. Uh-huh. There's going to be like an enormous settlement, but yeah, I'm not sure that that'll necessarily fix the fact that their relationship will be built on the foundation of extremely high-level trauma. You know, like, you could just imagine them in the mansion that the big Securetronics payout bought them. And then one of them being like, are you all right, baby? And the other one being like, yeah, I just, like, I'm thinking about that time that my best friend's head got blown off by a laser. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm imagining, yeah. now you say mansion, I'm imagining the mansion, and in the courtyard at the front, they have a fountain, and it's one of the robots with his arms out. And that's <laughs> the fountain. Just as a warning to any other robots that might have similar ideas. Yeah, spray painted gold. <laughs> Go tell the others what you saw. <laughs> <laughs> With that, we're mad shit for years and years and years. Just like three, four films every year, and there's a handful of films which I think are decent. It has like uh, I've always had a kind of soft spot for the Return the Swamp thing and Deathstalker two and things like that. But I mean, he, he went on to do stuff like Ghoulies Four, which is garbage. Uh, Piranaconda. 
I don't know if you've seen that, Mitch. It feels like Can something that you would watch. No. But uh, yeah, just stuff like the Bear Wench Project mm. and the hilariously titled Sexipede. Uh, it's just far and away the Jim Minoski film that I've gravitated to the most. I just think it's okay. great. Great performances. It's fun. It doesn't even come close to outstaying its welcome. Not even remotely, no. It's just, yeah, it's just a really great time. Like, it's just super fun 76 minutes. I must admit, I largely agree, Sam. I think that we probably would have had a fun conversation about any of the films that were on your list, but I'm glad that, because mm. this has been on the maybe pile with a couple of guests before in the past who've kind of come within kind of like a hair's breadth of doing it a couple of times. I'm glad we've finally done it. I um, I really love this, actually. Basically just kind of echoing everything Andy said. I think the performances are fun. Doesn't outstay its welcome. Practical effects are good. I love the fact that the fact that it's set in a mall simultaneously solves and exacerbates all the things that are weird and logically strange about it. Yeah, I I, uh, I had a great time with this. I'm really, I'm really glad you picked it. This was a really fun chat. Yeah, me too. Sam, before we wrap up, want to talk a little bit about uh, Criminal Audition? Yeah, of course. I checked this out just um, a week ago or so on Amazon Prime. Yeah. And uh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Now, this was a Fright Fest selection a couple of years back, right? Yeah, 2019. Hmm. You want to talk just a little bit about the film for anyone that hasn't seen it or isn't familiar? Yeah, Criminal Audition is my debut feature. um, And it's uh, basically like a talent show for people who want to be criminals that goes horribly wrong. (laughs) Um, and so we follow a company that finds the desperate and sometimes people that are desperate for fame or desperate for money or just low on their luck and they want a bit of cash to go and take the fall for other people's crimes and that kind of brings a lot of different kinds of characters to the table and we just see an example of one of these criminal auditions over one night one location, a bit similar to Chopping Mall in that sense. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know for viewers in the UK, you can get that on Amazon Prime. Uh, what's the availability elsewhere? Yeah, so in North America, it's on Amazon Prime as well. Um, you can also, in North America, buy it on DVD and Blu-ray. Ooh. Oh, nice. So yeah. what, was cool. the kinda, what was the kind of inspiration for that being your first feature? Yeah, well, my co-writer, Luke Kale, who is actually also the uh, lead in the film, back in 2009, uh, read an article about this kind of thing happening in China, uh, where people uh, go into prison as a doppelganger uh, for uh, other people, so they do the the jail time for them. And that inspired him to write a play, a short play, and then that turned into a slightly longer play. And then in about 2014, he said to me that he'd like to make it into a feature film and would I like to uh, possibly come on as director. And I then came on as co-writer and producer as well. So it it took many years to get to the screen, but we kind of did it from a grassroots, properly independent kind of place. Mm -hmm. So um, at the time when you came on then, uh, what had been your background in filmmaking? I had only really just left university, so I'd done a film degree and done practical uh, like directing and writing there as well. Okay. Um, and I had literally just made one short film out of uh, out of university, and then I went into script reading and script development, and so mm. I kind of did all that in the film industry proper alongside developing Criminal Audition. So right, okay, I've sure. kind of gained my experience 
in film and doing that at the same time. And then Criminal Edition kind of became my film school as well. That's great. Awesome. I mean, like, that's, 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 that's awesome. Uh, is there anything in the pipeline right now? Yeah, I mean, off the back of Criminal Edition, me and Luke, we started a production company called Milking First, and we're developing uh, a couple of features. The first one is a straight-up horror film. Okay. That is, in comparison to Criminal Audition, that was all indoors and the shoot was mm-hmm. all indoors <laughs> and everything. This is completely 100% outside oh, in the woods. <laughs> oh, jinx. Um, okay, right, okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a survivalist horror film in the vein of, like, Deliverance and uh, other films like that. But it's, oh, nice. uh, it's about, um, with themes about uh, believing victims of abuse. Right. And then another thing that I'm working on which is kind of uh the purge meets the wicker man oh hello so they're okay. kind of uh, lined up to be film two and film three possibly nice for me. like i say uh sam i really liked criminal audition i was kind of annoyed at myself that it took me so long to get around to it and because i do like kind of like if, especially kind of like i'm quite an avid festival goer in the uk and if i miss things then i like kind of circling back and catching up with them and things i really liked it i thought also that it was like very satisfyingly nasty <laughs> I think that we knew that we um, needed to make something that would have strength off like the writing and the characters. And I think the characters and the performances really bring out that nastiness and that kind of dark comedy. Um, and yes, we do have moments of gore, but it's kind of like pretty sudden and tried to make it as grounded as possible in order to have that shock. It kind of had the same attitude to its violence as things like Blue Ruin and stuff for me, where it's like something that was like quite graphic and quite unpleasant, but that was tossed off with no real theatre ceremony, and I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, because you want to just kind of, uh, you know, these people are using this, uh, you know, the, 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 the bad people in the film, although there's a lot of moral greys in there, are kind of using it as a commodity. So then it's kind of like, look, it happens, it's awful, and then, then we're moving on. Yeah, uh-huh. I, thought, I, I thought that was a cool thing. But yeah, it's out there. Um, Amazon Prime on both sides of the Atlantic. Go check it out. Awesome. Sam, this has been great. Really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people keep up with you on social media? I'm on Twitter at the Sam Gridley. And on Instagram at Samuel Gridley Director, mm-hmm. and yeah, that that's me on the, on the socials. But yeah, it's it's been a total pleasure coming on, talking to you guys, talking about films. That's kind of all that I do all day anyway. So oh, lovely. It's, it's great yeah. to do it. Uh, Sam, when film two rolls around, come back. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> definitely. Because we got to work our way through that list. That it's, it's, it's it's such a strong list, man. Yeah, we de- we definitely have to do at least one more. Uh, Sam, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us, man. Thank you. Thank you. Been a pleasure. If I had seen that film before and I don't remember it, it is to my immense shame. I think it's probably more to do with wine. I suppose so. Either way, great to visit slash revisit Chopping Mall tonight. And I, I would watch Chopping Mall any day of the week, so that to me was just just a delight. Just, just an average Monday. Big thank you to Samuel Gridley, director of Criminal Audition. That film was available everywhere. Go check it out as well. But yeah, thanks to Sam for coming on and talking Chopping Mall with us tonight. However, we're done. Done, done. Next. Next? Well, I'm glad you asked, Andy. I'm glad you inquired. We've got a mini-sode on the way on Monday, of course. We will be taking a look at your Nature Gone Wild side quest, kind of hoping that you'll be turning things around after the jungle. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have turned things oh. around after the jungle. So it's fantastic. You, you'll Please have to, to wait and hear what that is, but I'm going to tell you right now, 
It's a gem. Oh, great. Okay, cool. I also have a couple of cool things to talk about um, that I've been watching already as well. Lovely. Um, so we'll be doing all those things. We'll be taking a look at your feedback. We'll be letting you know all you need to know about next week's episode, which, hmm, is going to be interesting. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. However, if you want to get in touch with us between now and then, you know what to do. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. You can email Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. And you can join in, of course, the flourishing, burgeoning, bad film club that is our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Just search The Chud Locker on there and you're golden. And check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash strong language violent scenes. And thank you to new patrons. You are wonderful. You will hear your names on the minisode on Monday. Yeah, big thanks for that. And we will have some stuff coming your way very soon on there as well. However, we're back in your main feeds this Monday with another mini. So join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Have a nice day. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.